Isn't that song brilliant? <laughs> yeah, it absolutely. They, they liked it over, and a little bit over here. Okay. I think what is so clever about that song is that it, you know, it starts off with these two people who are kind of losing their love for each other, and their misguided impulse is to write ads in a newspaper, which apparently is like Tinder of the 80s. I, <laughs> I wouldn't know. Mom, Dad, like, I got questions. So anyway, the first two verses are them trying to find this new love in a new place. And the descriptions that they're anonymously putting into the newspaper are the descriptions of the people, and they don't realize it, that they've always been in love with. I love the words that, okay, let's remove all this red tape. We'll meet at a bar called O'Malley's at noon. He shows up with high hopes he's waiting. She walks into the place. I knew her smile in an instant, the curves of her face is my own lovely lady. And then they laugh and they say, I never knew that you like pina coladas. (sighs) (laughs) Okay, I'm going to just take a step back. So today we're looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And these are, this is the first letter of seven that John wrote on behalf of God to seven other churches. And any time that you get into the Bible in general, it's really beneficial to just think about what is the context and the intention of the things that were written. So in this scenario, uh, the number seven has a lot of significance. Because John said seven, many theologians have looked back at the Old Testament and said, look at the Sabbath cycle, the significance of seven, whenever a week comes to completion, right? Seven is completion. So we believe that when John writes seven letters to seven specific churches, it's also him saying, look, this is my guide for all churches of all eras, my complete guide. So that is the posture that we take when we look at this chapter. So look at the screen with me here. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Obviously, John is not capable of holding the churches in his hand. So he's saying, I'm writing on behalf of God. These are his words. So the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary yet. So he compliments them. Yet I have this against you. I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do repent, I will come to you. And rem- if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So this is God saying, hey, you've been a credible source that has illuminated my truth into the world. But watch out, because if you don't get your act together, I'm going to remove your credibility, and you will not be the shining light that you used to be. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious, to the one who rises to the challenge that God is putting in front of them. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So he's saying you will have communion with God. You will have unity. 
So there's three items that I think, if we explore a little bit, really help us to see the message inside of the message. The first item is this phrase that says, uh, the love you had at first. I can't help but think about the scene where Alfalfa has this picnic planned out for he and Darla, and he says to her what? The way you feed my soul, I can feed your face. And then he continues just fumbling over his words, and he hands her this plastic ring, and he says, I had to eat six boxes of Cracker Jacks for this. It's a symbol of my undying affliction for you. He clearly said the wrong word, but the foreshadowing there is amazing. If he only knew how in just a few short scenes later that he would actually feel afflicted by his love for Darla. So much so that uh, he's in this He-Man Woman Haters Club, right? And he has to prove his allegiance to them by writing an anti-love letter to Darla. So he, being the older kid in the show, is writing a note while he's saying a different note out loud to Porky and Buckwheat. (laughs) Well, Porky and Buckwheat end up sneezing in this message on their way to deliver it to Darla. So instead of giving... Darla, the handwritten letter that professed Alfalfa's love to her, they recite what they heard Alfalfa say. Do you guys remember these words? Dear Darla, I hate your stinking guts. You make me vomit. You are scum between my toes. It's funny that he accidentally wrote maybe one of the most famous letters of lost love that has ever been written, right? Now, there's another significant word. Well, let me back up real quick. So if you've been married for just even a short while, you know that love changes. I think that's what John is getting at when he's talking about first the love you had at first. It used to be different. A number of years ago, a newspaper revealed a sequence of actions where his husband responds to his wife's colds over seven years. It starts off like this, year one. Sugar dumpling, I'm really worried about you, baby girl. You got a bad sniffle. There's no telling what could happen with strep throat going around, right? So I'm putting you in the hospital this afternoon. And don't worry, I've already worked everything out with the superintendent of the hospital floor. I'm going to bring you Carver's steak. You don't have to eat Jello. It's going to be awesome. I'm taking care of you. Second, you're cold. Listen, darling, I don't like the sound of that cough. I've called the doctor over here. He's going to rush over. I'll take care of things around the house so you can just rest. Third, you're cold. Maybe you better lie down, honey. Nothing like a little rest when you feel lousy. What happened to the doctor? By the way, it's long gone. I'll bring you something. Do you have any canned soup in the cupboard? Fourth year cold. Now look, dear, be sensible. After you fed the kids, washed the dishes, and vacuumed the living room, you better lie down. Fifth year cold. Why don't you just take a couple aspirin? Sixth year cold. You should just gargle something instead of sitting around barking like a seal. Seventh year cold, for Pete's sake, stop sneezing. Are you trying to give me pneumonia? (laughs) What a love, a change of love over those seven years. Has anyone here ever said, I wish my spouse loved me the way they used to? You're smart. You didn't raise your hand. (laughs) Every service I've had somebody. No, I'm just kidding. Everybody's smart. Okay, so uh, about a month ago, 
my wife and I were talking about how we kind of, you know, wish we flirted with each other the way that we used to when we first started dating. So then we, we had an opportunity to go out. We go out to dinner. Somebody's watching our kids, and we're just having this amazing conversation, smiling and laughing. And then we do what any couple does after they've been married for 10 years and a really good meal, and we went to an automatic car wash. <laughs> so we're in this car wash, you know, we're still enjoying each other, listening to some good jams, the pretty colors of the soap are like streaming down my <laughs> wife's window. She's like looking out, and I'm, I'm thinking about that conversation. Man, I should try and flirt with my wife. So many heads can see what I'm about to do, and they're shaking like this. But my head was like, yes, and I went, the window comes down. It's like a hurricane on her side of the car. That did not spice things up the way that I thought it was going to, people. I put out the fire. Now, fortunately, my wife Katie is so grace-filled, and within just a few minutes, we were laughing about the way I chose to flirt. Offering reverse marriage counseling tips, so give me a holler. Uh, So just like our romantic loves face challenges, John is getting at that our relationship and our love for God faces challenge, the same challenge of change. So in that phrase, the love you had at first, love needs a little extra attention because we are in a culture where you can say, I love my mom, And you can also say, I love pizza. And if love doesn't mean something at least a little bit different in those two contexts, your mom is not going to feel great, right? So, fortunately, John, who's writing this letter to the church of Ephesus, is in a different culture with a different language, and he has four words for love. Each one has a specific, different meaning, and the word that he chooses is agape love. Jesus describes agape love better than anyone ever has or ever will. It's in Matthew 22. Check this out with me. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So then the Pharisees say, wait, which one's the most important? Love God or love your neighbor? And Jesus' answer is yes. (laughs) And just by asking the question which one is more important means that we're not getting it. Because Jesus is trying to show that agape love is an inseparable love, that you cannot separate your love for God from people and your love from people, from God. So jump into this with me at uh, chapter 2. We're in that chapter. That Verse 4 through 6. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The backstory here is that the Nicolaitans were this subversive group of people that were in the church of Ephesus, and they were twisting the message of grace. So they, instead of stewarding the grace, they were taking advantage of it and saying, well, if God forgives us for everything, 
then he will keep forgiving me for everything, and I can just do whatever I want and just indulge however I want. So the church of Ephesus encountered a lot of adversity by constantly trying to navigate this, this kind of evil influence. Not too long ago, I had a nap, awesome nap, kids are finally down, flies landing in my face. First, like three times, you, you just kind of brush it off, and then on the third time, I'm like kind of coming conscious, and I realize that I have made fists. The ratio for me to a fly is like three million to one, but I'm making fists, and even if I were to punch that fly square in the face, it's not going to die, right? It's just going to bounce off and come right back. Yet by the sixth time that this fly lands on my face, I am ready to abandon all rationality and totally sacrifice my face in order to destroy the fly. I think that's the same thing that's happening to the church of Ephesus. They're, they're using all of their energy and exhausting it by combating the Nicolaitans the wrong way. Actually, uh, a theologian named William Barclay says that they hunted heresy for so long that the church had become all about keeping people out rather than keeping people in. It became a game of criteria, and who met the criteria? Oh, now, you're, now we're willing to love you, but not until you meet that cr criteria. They cared more about building fences than inviting people in. So John, yes, he pays him this compliment, and he says, great job, like you have, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. But if you read the verse right before it, he's saying, you know, you're still missing it, you're doing something good, but abstaining from evil, to, to not love the wrong thing does not mean that you are loving the right thing. Let's go back to this, this Saint Augustine, he was a fourth century African follower of Jesus, he grew into this towering mind that people uh, had been influenced by for up to a millennia, even Western thought. And his basic take on the problem of the human condition was first and foremost this, our disordered loves and desires. His thesis was that we are made in the image of God, in love, by love, to love. And the main problem of our humanity is not that we don't love. It's that we love the wrong things. Or in this case, you love the right things the wrong way. But at the end of the day, it is still not the main thing. So it's not bad to say that I love my career, but if I say that I love my career more than my teenage daughter, there's something wrong with that. The order that we place love in our life has huge impact not just on the people around us, but also ourselves. So go back to this, this word, repent. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So the biblical meaning for the word repent isn't to just turn. It's part of it. But it also means to turn toward God. And I think this, this obviously was the secret for John trying to turn the church of Ephesus back to God. Our number one job as the church, our number one job as individual followers of Jesus is not just to follow rules, it's to connect ourselves to him. That is the most important thing that we could possibly do. So we're in this information age. If you look around, you can get a quote, you can download a book, a podcast, whatever. You can walk into a bookstore and just see 
loads of self-help books on how to become a happier, a better you. But yet when we look around in the real world, we see maybe more immaturity now than before the information age. So what is going on? Like, How is that information not making us better people? This guy uh, named James had an awesome quote uh, in his book. He's telling this story, You Are What You Love. And the story goes like this. His wife gives him a book on the slow food movement. He's like all in. It's about organics, locally grown, just eating whole. He has this highlighter out. He's immersed into this book, writing in the margins. And he looks up and he realizes that he's in a Costco food court with a hot dog half of the way out of his mouth. And he makes this great point. He says the problem wasn't knowledge. In his mind, he was bought in to whole eating. The problem is that he still loved hot dogs. I expected amens too. I'm just falling flat there. I love hot dogs anyway. So uh, the, the problem is not knowledge. The problem is that we believe that information equals transformation. But it doesn't. We know this to be way painfully true in the church. We have Christians that over decades and decades have filled themselves with scripture, knowledge, but they're, they're missing the transformation. I was noticing this in my own life not very long ago, and I stumbled into a quote from a guy named Dallas Willard, and it's changed my life, and I hope that it will keep changing my life. It goes like this, Bible study prayer, and church attendance among the most commonly prescribed activities in Christian circles generally have little effect for soul transformation as is obvious to any observer. If all the people doing them were transformed to health and righteousness by it, the world would be vastly changed. Their failure to bring about the change is precisely because the body and the soul are so exhausted and fragmented and conflicted that the prescribed activities cannot be appropriately engaged and by and large degenerate into legalistic and ineffective rituals. Lengthy solitude and silence, this is his solution, including rest can make them very powerful because spiritual formation is commonly referred to now as a matter of reforming the broken soul of man in recovery from its alienation from God, really its soul reformation. Now Southbrook, over the years, has looked and analyzed the life of Jesus and, and pulled out what we believe to be the five transformational behaviors or values of Jesus, and then when we practice those, we can experience transformation. They're called the five S's. It's scripture, it's solitude, it's significant events, it's support, and it's service. I practiced four of those, I feel like, pretty diligently for a long time. But there was one that I never practiced. And I couldn't understand why in myself, why I wasn't feeling the transformation that I so was desperately to seek. It's solitude. I can attest to this in my own journey. It, it feels so counterintuitive, just like everything else about Christianity is that when you lose your life, you will find it. To be alone means to be with God. Like, how does, how does that make sense? Jesus understood it. He understood the, 
The Power of Habits. There's a book called The Power of Habits, and this is what it says. We are little more than the cumulative effect of our daily and weekly habits. The things that we do do something to us, and we become what we do. Jesus had these habits that he practiced that would get into the core of his being, and I believe from there would overflow with his ability to love the crowds around him, his friends, his family, the disciples, and even the very religious people that were spitting in his face. Jesus had these famous words in John 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. We start to think about these five S's and they seem like so much work. Jesus, I think this picture is beautiful. Have you ever looked into an orchard and observed a branch like so stressed out? Oh, make the fruit, concord, deliciousness. Like, ah, that's not a thing. The branch, all the branch is doing is just hanging on. And look at all the fruit that comes out of it. And Jesus is using the simple picture of, let me do all the work. All you have to do, all you have to do is stay connected to me. On a math level, a fifth of Jesus' teachings were actually about doing what he says. And in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, he says, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice they will experience the transformation. And I think Jesus, being Jesus, a spiritual ninja, was very intentional about the words that he chose, and the word practice is special. For years and years, I have tried to be spiritual. If you were to tell me, sit down and learn Beethoven's Ninth Symphony on piano, go, try. I, I play guitar, I'm awful at piano. Right? So if I just tried really hard, it's not going to happen. If you told me, hey, I'll give you 10 or 12 months, you practice for 30 minutes every day, I think any one of us could learn Beethoven's Symphony, ninth, on piano with 10 or 12 months. But the difference is, instead of trying, we train. Now here's what I mean by that. We all have a finite amount of willpower. Mine's usually gone by 9.45 in the morning. In the morning. Yeah, amen. I, I feel you. So what are we supposed to do? If we just try really hard and we muster all the willpower that we have, we'll be exhausted, there won't be any change. If we take and harness tiny little bits of willpower over and over and over and over again, that's where the money is. That's where the transformation happens. I believe that if you were to take two Christians, followers of Jesus for up to 40 years, and you had one who practiced solitude and one who did not, I think it would take you a few minutes, maybe an hour of being around those people to notice who was spending time in solitude toward God. A lot of us, we think about solitude towards God. We're on our way to work. It's like 6.55. You've got to be there at 7. And you say, okay, God, I'm here. My uh, iPhone, no, put that away. Okay, I'm back. Blah, 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 blah. God, can I download some patience? I really need that. Just like a podcast in my brain. Boom, I'm ready to go. Okay, um, what do you want to say to me? Nothing? Okay, good. I'll see you tomorrow. And we do it all over again. And it's like, no wonder change isn't happening. Have you ever looked 
at a runner running down the street. They're like negative 5% body fat. They clearly only eat bananas and seeds for all of their meals. And you think, wow, they look like a gazelle. I want to look like that gazelle. But then you start to look at what they have to do to look like that gazelle. They're running like well over 50 miles a week, eating bananas and seeds. And you think, no, I don't really want that lifestyle as much as (laughs) I thought I did, right? Like, how relatable is that? This... I'm all about coming to church. I believe in it. I don't think we ever get to a point of maturity where we grow out of coming to church. But there's something that is breaking down between coming to church and being transformed. There's a guy named John Mark Comer. He's a pastor in Portland, Oregon. Awesome, awesome teacher. He talks about uh, how he ran into this guy named Mike who runs a Jesus dojo in California. Of course, it's California, Jesus Dojo. And he asked Mike, like, hey, explain this weird thing to me. Like, help me get it. And Mike explains that following Jesus is way more about a lifestyle than it is, like, learning algebra. Yet, the church is set up as an academic institutional learning lecture hall. That, and we try, to, we try to learn how to do life by just teaching concepts and he says we need to be more like a karate dojo than a lecture hall so training to learn how to follow jesus with nothing but a sermon series and a devotional book is like learning karate with a podcast and a video and then saying show me all your moves and this is what i love how he wraps it up he says at some point you gotta wax on and you gotta wax off I keep trying to convince Charlie that we should name Southbrook a Jesus dojo. He's not biting right now. So I want to spend the rest of my time with you talking about what solitude is. Solitude cannot happen without silence. And there's two different kinds of silence that have to take place in order for solitude to be productive in the way that it turns your attention to God. So there's external silence. It's just literally, it's easy. Everything around you is quiet. And then there's internal silence. And this is where the battle is at. Because you've got, oh, that conversation I had with somebody yesterday that felt really weird and I can't stop thinking about it. Or, oh, that Instagram post that I saw or that I need to post because all my friends are wondering how awesome my life is and blah, 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 squirrel. And you're just like (laughs) totally distracted on the inside. But you have to be silent on the outside and on the inside if you're really going to focus your attention to God. There's this amazing documentary called Won't You Be My Neighbor. It's all about Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And he's been accused for tons of silence on his show, right? And at first I didn't understand it. It felt awkward to me. His producers thought the same thing. They said to him, if time is money and you're wasting time, then you're wasting money. Give us an explanation for all this silence on your show. Take a look at this quote. Fred says, this amazing response. It seems to me a lot of us appreciate information over wonder and noise over silence. The brief moments of silence 
Oh, we have a lot to learn from silence. The brief moments of silence on my show might be the only intentional silence that kid experiences. It totally seems like that anytime that, I mean, I wake up and the first thing I do is look at a screen. Mr. Rogers, his whole life was spent impacting people after people after people, big and small, and every day he practiced his own solitude and silence. And from there overflowed all of this goodness into the world. So without silence, there can be no solitude. But solitude is not the same as loneliness. This is something that I couldn't understand. Like, why is being alone being with God? So Richard Foster, in his book, The Celebration of Discipline, not a top seller right now, right? Loneliness is inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment. They're different things. This other guy named William has an amazing insight into solitude, and he says it is unlikely that we will deepen our relationship with God in a casual or haphazard manner. There will be a need for some intentional commitment and some reorganization in our own lives. But there is nothing that will enrich our lives more, deep, more than a deeper and clearer perception of God's presence in the routine of daily living. Who's the responsibility on for Ephesus to get John's challenge correct, to get it right? It's not God's responsibility. It's not really even John's responsibility. It's the church of Ephesus' responsibility. Whose responsibility is it for you to maintain your love for God? It's yours. It's mine. And as long as we keep expecting organizations or institutions to do the work for us, we will look back and someday say, what happened to the transformation that I was promised over and over and over again? The paradox, again, of solitude towards God is like, how can this make sense? How do I structure it? Why is being alone like being with God? In the information age, well, our love is our attention. Where we give our attention is what we love. Mother Teresa had it nailed down. She has a, a, um, this interview with Dan Rather in the 80s. Full circle, 80s, right? Okay. And uh, Dan Rather asked her this question. What is, like, he's trying to figure out why she's so special and what she does with her time with God. So she, he, he asks her, when you pray to God, what do you say? Mother Teresa responds. She says, I don't say anything. I just listen. He's kind of puzzled, trying to figure this interview out. So he says, well, when you pray, what does God say to you then? And she says, he doesn't say anything to me. He just listens. And then she kind of shrugs her shoulders because she doesn't know how else to explain it. And this is what she says. If you don't understand that, I don't know how to describe it to you. And the tone of the way that she says that is, is just loaded with pity. Oh, I, wish, I wish I could make this happen for you, but you have to make it happen for you. I want to tell you about the way that I exercise solitude, and it's been influenced by tons of really smart people. There's a guy named Brother Lawrence, and he talks about the practice of practicing the presence of God. 
Here's the challenge. Maybe you're already practicing solitude, and that is awesome, and I hope you feel encouraged and like you, you have the, your eye on the right prize. But if you don't, 10 minutes tomorrow. iPhone studies are showing that the average American spends between one and a half and two and a half hours on their phone. 30 to 60 minutes of that time for millennials is on Instagram. We have the margin. Will we cut it out? Spend that 10 minutes. So when I practice solitude in the morning, I have to beat my kids, that sounds funny, to waking up, right? I got to wake up before them. And uh, otherwise, they're like this two-headed monster, and there's no chance at solitude. Can I get an amen from the young folk here? Uh, And so what I do is I start with the ancient Hebrew practice of pour over coffee. I get myself set up. And then I just, I slide into this bench at our family dining table. The house is quiet. I put my hands up on the table and they're just palms up. Sherry McMahon talked about this not that long ago at Mother's Day weekend with the idea of Sabbath, which is like a big effort of solitude, a Sabbath towards God, giving him all of your attention. And the posture of palms up says, God, I'm listening. In any moment that... I notice that my inner silence starts to go away and I start thinking about the things I need to do that day, you flip your hands over. Because you're in a posture now where you're not listening. And then once I can quiet myself on the inside, I flip my palms back over and I say, okay, God, I'm here. I know you're here. And for some people, it looks like, uh, you know, a Bible study devotion. For some people, it looks like just prayer. For, uh, for me, it's kind of a combination of the two things. I love looking through stories of scripture and, and, and how those things can turn my attention towards God. The, the story of Jesus coming out of the Jordan after he's just been baptized and the heavens open up, a dove flies down and God says, what? This is my son who I am well pleased. So I'll, I'm in that posture and I'll just say, God, what can I do that makes you delight in me today? Micah 6, 8, and just say, God, I want to walk humbly with you. I want to love mercy. I want to act justly. And just sitting still. No agenda. The agenda is just to be, to be with God. One of my favorite prayers is the prayer of Jesus in, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, I love the message version. It starts like this. With a God that loves you like this, you can pray simply like this. It doesn't have to have bells and whistles. You don't have to be a spiritual guru to experience what I think is the transformation of just sitting and being still with God. We just have to quiet ourselves. There's a story about two Greek travelers famous travelers that are tasked with navigating their ships and their sailors and all their goods around this like route that is super dangerous because there are rocks and sirens that are singing sweet seductive songs on top of these rocks that ultimately lure sailors into a trance and their ships crash into the rocks into their doom. So of these two famous travelers, the first one, his name is Ulysses, and this is how His strategy works for getting around these attention-seeking sirens. 
and he plugs the ears of his sailors with beeswax, and then he orders that they are all tied up to the masts of the ship, and that there are basically knives just without of reach so that by the time they get past the siren's rocks, somebody can free the ship and keep moving on to the course that they're supposed to navigate. His method is the method of compulsion. The second traveler, his name's Orpheus, and he is known as a famous musician in Stowe. His approach is to match the appeal of those seductive siren songs by singing a still sweeter appeal, his own song, to his sailors while they pass the rocks with no harm. I think that God's way is the second way. I think God doesn't want us to love him out of compulsion or rules as he clearly states in his letter to Ephesus. He gives us the dignity to choose whether or not we love him. So wake up tomorrow and choose to listen to God's voice and settle all of the other distractions and all the other things that are vying for your attention and say, God, I'm listening to you. Have a great weekend, everybody. See you next week.